turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The whole 8th chapter of the book of Romans is filled with those superlative verses that just take us to the height of our salvation. You know, there are special passages of Scripture. John 3.16 is one. Right to the heart of salvation. The 23rd Psalm is one. Right to the heart of God's caring shepherding of us. You know, some passages of Scripture just stand out. Well, Romans 8 is full of them. And in verses 18 through 25, we have a paragraph that touches us where we are and lifts our eyes to look beyond to where God is taking us in order that the trials of the present time might be put in perspective. All of the 8th chapter of Romans is occupied with the thought of walking in the Spirit. It takes us to a place where the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives, where we are yielded to Him, where the presence of God is functioning and operating within us, motivating and guiding and directing, and where spiritual victory, and by that I mean walking consistently in godliness and obedience and the joy of the Lord throughout the day is is possible, But Paul does not take us to some imaginary utopia where he kind of says, okay, put this big smile on your face and run around, you know, looking like you just won the lottery for the rest of your life because that's what happy Christians do. He does not negate the reality that we are saved people, that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, that we have the first fruits and earnest of our salvation, but we ain't there yet. And this life still has trouble, and lots of it. Sometimes it comes, it seems, in just waves. And Paul is dealing with that. And he wants us to know that God is not saying to us, and Paul is not saying to us, the Christian life is a bed of roses. You know, in recent years, people have written all sorts of interesting books that have become popular. Uh, One of those uh, books, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? I could spend a lot of time just dealing with the theology of the title. There aren't any good people, but anyway... You know, that's a little hard for the general public to take, so I'll just let it lie for a little bit. Philip Yancey, not too long ago, authored a book called Disappointment with God. And a lot of literature seems to be coming to the fore that deals with this concept that God has somehow let me down. That Christianity is not all I expected it to be. That somehow my life still has problems that I didn't think it would have. 
And perhaps, especially in, you know, in our society, we have inadvertently painted a picture that simply isn't true. Maybe people have come to Christ with expectations that are unrealistic to begin with. Because I guarantee you that whenever you feel like God has done something mean to you, you're wrong. You know, God is God. And he loves you. And, and so if there's a disconnect somewhere, you know, uh, like the, the old saying, if, if God seems distant and far away, guess who moved? It's not him. We're the ones with the issue. And I think sometimes we have expectations that are beyond what the scriptures actually offer to us. And in that light, in the middle of this discussion of walking in the Spirit, Paul gives us these verses beginning in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which is to be revealed to us. Now, at first blush, when you read that, it almost sounds like Paul is belittling the present suffering. It almost sounds like Paul is saying, you got troubles? Ah, don't worry about them. <laughs> Man, there's a great future out there. Your troubles ain't nothing. Just don't be bothered by your troubles. But that's not what he's really saying. Paul is acknowledging that we have suffering. He's recognizing that. In fact, the Scripture, all through the Scripture, Old and New Testament, recognize that we have trouble in this life. Jesus said it to his disciples. In this world, you will have tribulation. He followed it very quickly by saying, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But in this world, you will have tribulation. Another passage invites us to pray. And it says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me. See, labor, heavy laden, burdened down, come to me, learn of me, take my yoke upon you and walk with me. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. In all of these passages, the first thing that is recognized is we have problems. Philippians uh, chapter 3, people so frequently go there, chapter 4, and they, they quote those passages, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which goes beyond all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we say, see there, you don't have to worry. That's not what it says. It says, bring your anxiety to Jesus. The opening statement is, we recognize I have anxiety. I ha I'm, I'm worried. Okay, come to God. <laughs> don't have to stay there. But we recognize that we start there many times. So Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time, he's not making light of them. 
He's not belittling the fact that we struggle. Friends, we have deep issues that confront us. We live in a time, in an age, when relationships fail, when marriages come unglued, when parent-child relationships become estranged. We live in a time of, of death and of dying and of sickness and sadness and heartache and people losing their jobs in this economy and these kinds of things happening, we live in times that are troubled. And Paul is not ignoring it. But what he says is, set up a scale. Imagine in your mind the, the old-fashioned beam scale with the, with the trays on both sides, you know, the attorney symbol, <laughs> the, the justice. Set that beam scale up in your mind. And Paul says... Put your troubles on this side of the scale. Put them in the pan to your right. Okay? And then if you're going to sell that pan of troubles, you would use certified weights to put on the left until you measured it out, and when it came to be equal, you'd know how much troubles you had. Paul says, put your troubles in the scale on the right, and then... I want to talk to you about all the glory that is to come. And I want you to put that on the left. And when you do that, what's going to happen is, without minimizing the reality of your suffering, when you put all the glory I'm about to reveal on the left, that tray's going to hit the desk and the other one's going to bounce up so high it knocks the troubles almost off the scale. There's no comparison. You can't even weigh it in the same instrument. It's beyond compare. He says, let me tell you about the glory and the things that God has in store for us. For he says in verse 19, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. now I want to go back and tell you a story that brings this together and <coughs> puts what Paul is getting at into perspective for us. He says, you have trouble in your life. He says, you're not the only one. All of creation has trouble. The whole world is struggling. All of nature is struggling. Waiting for one particular thing, for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, ladies, you remember what I said a couple weeks ago, and I want to take you back and remind you of that. Why does Paul use sons terminology in this passage? Are there no daughters of God? Well, yes, there are. There are daughters. But Paul is actually uh, arguing for equality here. He's actually driving at equality for this reason. Because in that day and age, 
a daughter did not have an inheritance. The family was paid a dowry for her, and she went with her husband, and she benefited from (coughs) his inheritance, and he took her home to his household. The only people who inherited in most families in that time and culture were were the guys. And the eldest son got a double portion, and everybody else, all the other boys, got an equal portion, and the girls got nothing. And so if Paul had said sons and daughters in these passages, he would have made a cultural distinction, and you ladies would have been left out. But he uses sons' terminology for all believers because every child of God has the inheritance of a son. Every child of God, man or woman, inherits equally in the kingdom of God. So he's actually making an appeal here for equality. And he says all of creation is longing for the manifestation, the unveiling of the sons of God, those who get the inheritance. That's all of us who know Jesus Christ. Waiting for the day when, when the, the veil is lifted, when the revelation is made complete, and everyone who is a child of God is clearly uh, shown forth. Now, when is that going to occur? A little later, we're going to talk about it in, in more depth. But that's going to occur when the dead in Christ are raised, and those who are alive when Christ come are translated in the air to meet the Lord, and we receive our resurrected, glorified bodies and return with Jesus Christ to reign upon this earth. That is when the whole world, the whole creation, will see clearly the children of God. When they are manifest and revealed in their resurrected and glorified state. And Paul says all of creation is looking forward to this. Why? Because at the present time, what we see in the world around us is not the norm according to God's standards. Friends, God made the world, the scripture says, six days he put it all together, and after every creative event, God had this declaration, it is good. It is good. Everything he made is good. And when God made the planet, and he, and he crafted Adam and Eve, and he built that garden, and he put them in the middle of the garden, God said, this is very good. And he said to Adam and Eve, he said, I want you to, to multiply and fill this earth. And I want you to subdue it and have dominion over it, because this is a world that I made for you. And I want you to enjoy this world. I want you to rule this earth. I want you to have authority here. This is your world. I made it for you. You know, we have a lot of stuff going on today appealing for ecology and, and, you know, we have green machines and green light bulbs and they're white, but they're supposed to be energy saver. And everything is is aimed at preserving the, the ecosystems of the world. There are some people who are so fanatical that they even go to the point of saying human beings are just transient on the drama of earth history. And we're relatively insignificant to the much more important uh, trend of the world itself 
And, you know, we don't even belong here, really. It's kind of weird, you know, that everybody else gets a place but people in that mentality. But people are subordinated to the environment, and the environment is more important than, than the human inhabitants and take a second place. I could go into a lot of detail on how I think in America that's kind of a national guilty conscience over abortion, but that's another story. We'd rather save the whales than the babies, but, you know, that's, that's a different track. But the issue is, is that the world is actually bound up with humanity. I'm not advocating for a heartbeat here that we abuse the planet. But here's what I'm saying. The planet was made for us. The world was made for us. The animal kingdom was made for us. The plants and trees and flowers, the environment was made for us. God designed this beautiful system for us. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they not only damaged themselves and all of their offspring, <clears throat> but they damaged the world that God had given them. And just as it was designed for humanity, its restoration, its salvation, is linked to man's salvation. This world is not going to be restored until Human beings are restored until God has saved as many as will come. And there comes a time when he restores the glory of the pristine, original state of man, body, soul, and spirit, fully perfected in this lovely kingdom that is coming. And when he does that, all the things that are wrong with this planet are going to be fixed. Now again, I just, I just want to underscore, because for one thing, besides you, this gets broadcast on the internet, I just want to underscore, when someone gives you a precious gift that has great value, you have a responsibility to take care of it. I'm not suggesting that we abuse the earth, that we take for granted the resources that we have and just pilfer them. I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm making, the point I'm making is that the earth's history and its future is tied inextricably. It means you can't take it apart. It's tied inextricably to humanity. And the Bible says that since the fall of man, since the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, when this judgment came upon the whole planet, all of creation is yearning for the completion of salvation and the restoration of humanity, at least those who are saved. I want to take you back to the garden for a moment and remind you of what happened in Genesis 3. You can read it when you get home. But in Genesis 3 is the story of the temptation and the sin and the fall of man. And you remember after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat from, he came to have his evening walk, and they were hiding. And you remember the words of God, Adam, where are you? And finally, Adam came out of hiding, or at least spoke up, 
and said, We are hiding. We heard your sound in the garden and we have hidden from you. And God says, Why are you hiding? Did you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Adam and Eve said, We did. And God had a dialogue with them. And he said, From this day forward, you're going to be driven out of the garden. And you're going to go out into the world beyond the garden, and you're going to have to raise your own food. But he said, there is going to be a problem. Cursed is the ground because of you. And it will yield for you thorns and thistles. In other words, raising your food is not going to be easy. And you're going to labor from the sweat of your brow, trying to make a living from soil that is going to resist your efforts and grow for you wild things when you're trying to grow vegetables. Cursed is the ground because of you. And with that pronouncement, Adam and Eve were driven out of the paradise, the Garden of Eden, into a world that now had been damaged by their sin. And the world that we see today is not the world that God made. The world we see today is a world that has been marred and damaged by sin. How many of you are nature lovers? I mean, you just enjoy being out there. Good. There's a room full. I can, I can talk to you from my heart. I love being in the woods. I love, I love being with the animals. I love being, I used to, when I didn't have so many back problems, and, uh, and, I, and I wore my backpack on my back instead of other places, um, I would go hiking into the deep woods. I took one trip one time when uh, the friend that I was hiking with said to me at one point, he said, do you realize that we have not heard the sound of an automobile or any human creation for three days? And it was like, oh, that's, that's what's been blissfully absent <laughs> from, my, from my brain. And, I, and, and it was beautiful, and we saw bears on that hiking trip. We were in the Smokies, and we saw bears in the trees and we saw all kind of things and I just I just love being in nature but there are some things about nature that that just make my heart ache some people look at it and say wow this is beautiful but there's some parts of it that are not beautiful I have an image in a magazine of a wolf snarling as it lifts its head from being in the carcass of an animal that it has killed freshly and its, its fur is dripping with the blood and the, and the snarl is on the face because it thinks it's being threatened from its food. That's not a pretty picture. I have one image that um, I saw from a nature photographer that to me, I, I wanted to, to put it on the screen for you this week, and I didn't have time to put all that together. But, but she was filming a mother duck with her ducklings. There were about nine of them to begin with. And she was filming this duck family, just taking photographs every day. 
and a gull, like seagull, a gull discovered the ducklings. And she watched every day as at a certain point in time, this gull would sweep out of the sky and snatch away one of the ducklings. And one morning she caught this in a photograph of this gull just leaving about maybe three and a half feet off the water, just leaving with the duckling dangling helplessly in its bill. And the mother duck, you can just see the angst in her face. She's almost coming out of the water, flapping with her neck stretched up and her bill open. You can, you can tell she's screaming at this gull that has stolen another one of her ducklings. And, and that picture says to me, something is wrong here. Something is wrong here. This doesn't look like what God would put together. Contrast that with a video clip that was sent to me in an email. Some of you may have seen it. It was on a, an evening news somewhere. And uh, this woman had found a, a lion in Africa, had found a lion, that uh, a cub, a little tiny thing, that was left in the jungle, weakened, sick, emaciated, and she had taken this little male lion cub and had nurtured it back to health, cared for it, fed it, and uh, took care of it and raised it. I don't know how all the permissions and all went around. She must have been some sort of a naturalist to even get away with that. But anyway, she had cared for this lion cub until... Um, it got too big for her to take care of. And she had made it a, a arrangements to go to a zoo. And so uh, it shows, they videotaped the first day that she went to see the lion after it was uh, in the zoo, you know, and here's this big, huge male lion with the mane and everything. And she goes up, and it's like jail bars on the lion cage, and she goes up to the cage and taps her hands on the cage. And what you think is about to happen from the way the film looks is this lion is about to just devour her. Because he comes to, to the front and recognizes her and stands up on his hind feet and reaches his paws through the bars and puts them around her neck and gives her a big kiss right on the mouth. And then he pats her back. And they stand there, and he's just got this big, happy look on his face, and he's patting her back, and she's rubbing his fur, you know, and you look at that and you say, now that is the way it's supposed to be. You know, here's this woman playing with this huge cat. And Isaiah paints a picture of this very thing as he anticipates the millennial kingdom, he says these words. In that day, speaking of the kingdom, when Jesus has returned and all of us are with him reigning in glory, he says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Now when have you ever seen wolves and lambs lie down in the field together? 
When have you ever seen lambs even hang around when there was a wolf in the field? But Isaiah says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Then he says a very remarkable thing. He says, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. In other words, this king of beasts that is the most feared predator in the forest will no longer be a carnivore, but will become a grazer, eating straw like the oxen do. And then he says, a child will play at the den of the adder. We're talking cobras here. A child will play at the den of the adder, and there will be no harm in my kingdom. Here is a radical transformation of nature, where carnivores and and omnivores, the meat-eaters and predators and the grazers, are together all eating grass. And children are playing with what were considered ferocious and deadly creatures with no harm. Because God's intention is to rectify all that is wrong with what we see. When I watch, when I watch birds right outside my office window fighting over the seed, and there's plenty to go around. But they knock each other off the perches. They're amazing. <clears throat> Sometimes they're comical. The other day I was watching and one was sitting there calmly feeding. And I don't even know where this other one came from. But it was off to my left somewhere beyond the window. And all of a sudden I see this flash of gray come across the window. And just swoops in and knocks the other one right off the perch does a Yui and comes back and lands himself. And the other one's like, what happened? You know, you can tell he's just knocked off balance. They don't even like each other when it comes to food time. And you look at this and you see what's going on and there's something wrong that the Scripture says all of nature is yearning for change. In fact, the imagery of the words are fascinating. The anxious longing of creation eagerly waits. That is a picture of someone... That's not going to work because I can't raise that. That's a picture of someone straining like at the top of a fence, neck out and head over, anxiously looking forward and looking down the road with longing. When is it going to be? When are they coming? When is creation going to be straightened out? When the sons of God are manifest. And Paul says nature is yearning for the day. We are bound up together. The curse is not eliminated until salvation is complete and humanity is restored. And so they're waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. For we know that all of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Imagine the world in labor. You mothers, you know better than I 
what he's talking about here. The intensity of the labor of childbirth. That the goal is just to get this baby born. And then the baby arrives. And everything changes. And the release and the relief that comes after the birth of the child. Imagine the world in labor, waiting to give birth to the child that the scripture says is the manifestation of the church of Jesus Christ in glory. For he goes on to say, not only this, verse 23, but also we ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit. In other words, we have a foretaste right now. We have the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of God in our life. We have a relationship with Him. This is, this is, this moment in time we can connect with God, but everything is not right. You know you still struggle. You have grief. You have sadness. You have pain. You have sickness. That flu thing has been going around. My wife has had it for a week and a half, and you just can't seem to get past it. It drags people down. You have aches and pains. You struggle. We're aging. We're not getting any younger, folks. I didn't used to think that way, but that's because I was young then, and I'm not getting any younger. Now I recognize it. And worse things happen. We have the, the, the down payment of the Spirit in our lives, but there's still trouble. And yet, Paul says, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we're groaning. We're yearning. For what? Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. The redemption of our body. Now this is a very interesting statement. Because Paul is saying to us that our adoption is not complete until the redemption of the body. You know, your salvation is secure. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, you have received the earnest of the Holy Spirit, earnest as in earnest money. You know, when you go to buy a house, you go to buy a piece of property, you put up earnest money. That's your guarantee that you are going to follow through with the purchase. That enables the seller to take the deal off the market and put it in your lap and trust you to, to bring the things together to make the purchase. That's the guarantee. We have received the earnest of the Holy Spirit deposited in our life. It's proof that we're going to be fully redeemed. But we are not fully redeemed until our bodies come out of the ground. And when our bodies are raised, you know, and I, and I said in the first hour, people get all uh, concerned about this. What about people that are lost in explosions? What about people that are lost at sea? What about this? What about that? Friends, people that have been dead more than a couple hundred years, we're all back to the earth. Okay? It's God's job to keep up with the molecules. That's, that's not our problem. But he says one day a trumpet is going to sound, 
And two things are going to happen in quick succession. When that trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ are going to be raised. That means all over this globe, human beings are coming out of the ground. In perfectly whole condition, healthy, without pain, without suffering, in bodies that will never die, in bodies that have no material need, in bodies that will last eternally without any kind of disability. We're coming out of the ground. And those who are alive, when that trumpet sounds and know Jesus Christ, that those who are alive in him will also rise to meet him in the air. We'll be translated instantly in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and we will rise with those who have died before and all of us will greet the coming king. And then God is going to throw a big wedding feast because the lamb and the bride have come together. And there's going to be this big marriage feast and the bride of Christ, the church, is going to be with Jesus. And we're going to celebrate. And in that celebration, the the millennial kingdom is going to be ushered in when Jesus Christ reigns upon this earth for 1,000 years. And we are going to reign with him as the manifest children of the living God. And when that occurs, the redemption of our bodies, everything that's wrong with this world is going to be retuned. It's going to be fixed. And nature is going to change. And the whole attitude of the world, as Satan is bound for a thousand years, the whole attitude of the world is going to change. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. I want to conclude this morning by just saying to you, when, when we talk about hope in our common language, we usually mean something we don't know if we're going to get or not. Well, I hope I can take a vacation this year. When you say it like that, you mean, I don't know. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. You know? I hope this flu thing goes away eventually. <laughs> Some people think it's here forever. You know, when we talk about hope, we talk about something that's iffy. But when the scripture speaks of hope, it talks about something that is guaranteed, but just not here yet. And when we talk about the hope of our salvation, the hope of the future, it is something that God has promised. And you can take his promise, as they say, to the bank. God has promised, but it hasn't come yet. And so we are anticipating its arrival. We are waiting. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for a glory that is going to be revealed that, friends, we cannot even imagine here this morning. Just think with me for a moment. Think about, first of all, perfect love. No damaged relationships. No friction. No fighting. No turmoil. No distrust. 
The whole family of God is together and nobody has a gripe. Just think about that. Your family's together and nobody has a gripe. Imagine being in a body that is never hungry, never thirsty, never tired, never sick, never hurts, never requires care, enables you to go anywhere, do anything you want in the blink of an eye. Like Jesus' body, walls don't even slow it down. Moving from here to South Africa is just a a thought away. A body that knows no boundaries, that is eternally youthful, whatever that means, perfectly healthy. Imagine the presence of Jesus all the time, right before your eyes. Imagine being able to go out in the field and play with a lion, like a big furry cat. That may not appeal to some of you, but I find the thought rather intriguing. And the thing won't stink, you know? I mean, there's some benefit to that. Imagine a place that is so incredible. Imagine your loved ones there, people that you've already lost to death and you're grieving over, but they're there, together again. It's reunion. Imagine it. Paul says, we got trouble, folk. But when you take your trouble and put it on this side of the scale, and then you compare it to the glory that's on the way, they don't equate. They can't even be talked about in the same context. There's no comparison. He's not downplaying our trouble, but he is upplaying the glory. Imagine it. This is our hope, which in God's terms is a guarantee that just hasn't arrived yet. This is our future. And all of creation is waiting with us for the day when Jesus comes again. Man. Romans gets better after this. But what a high point that God is taking us to for the future. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name that you would just give us eyes to see and hearts to believe all that you have prepared for us who love you and to know that it is ours guaranteed. Tom was right at the beginning of the service. There is nothing more precious than knowing that we are saved, knowing that we have salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, and that one day we will see him. In fact, we'll be like him, John says, for we shall see him as he is. And all that's wrong with this universe will be fixed. And beyond that, a new heaven and a new earth forever in your presence. 
This life is but a vapor. The future is forever. God help us to keep it in perspective. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.